Voices from the Frontlines, your national movement building show. This is Channing Martinez, your producer and co-host. In this segment of the show, we'll listen to two separate but interrelated conversations with Eric Mann and Mamiya Abu-Jamal. We felt this would be a great companion with the conversation with Eric and me on the Youth Justice Coalition's community meeting with system officials on the conditions of incarcerated folks today during the COVID-19 quarantine. Mamiya has one of the greatest minds of the 20th and 21st century, and together, Eric and Mamiya speak about the film Lincoln and the concept of menticide. As always, we'd love to hear from you, especially now during the quarantine. Please send us comments and reflections on the show to Eric at Voices from the Frontlines and Channing at thestrategycenter.org. And if you're not already subscribed to our mailing list, please go right now to www.voicesfromthefrontlines.com. Hi, this is Eric Mann. Is this Mumia? It is indeed. Hey, brother. I'm very excited to be talking to Mumia Abu-Jamal. Um, I was profoundly impacted by our last conversation, and um, I've sort of been on a whirlwind of thinking and reading and writing, and I'm going to, if it's okay, do a couple minutes of reflections on our last conversation. Damon Azali Rojas and others have suggested that we consider our conversation sort of as an infinite series on <laughs> black revolutionary thought and where do we go from here. Are you up for me opening and then you'll... you'll I'm actually down for that. <laughs> that's better than up. So yeah. uh, it's wonderful to be talking to you, so let, let me start. Lincoln is a film that should be resubmitted for a new category that Hollywood perfects, but not, does not yet publicly recognize well-meaning pictures that do more harm than good. Lincoln is a film about white people debating, maneuvering, and fighting over whether or not to pass the 13th Amendment. But where were the black historical dramatic actors who were the real leads of the story, the 400,000 runaway slaves who forced the Union armies to accept them and who put the heat on Lincoln to support their emancipation or lose the war. They were whited out of the film. Lincoln is not just historically inaccurate, but tragically so, doing its greatest disservice to a new generation of black youth whose people's remarkable history in fighting slavery, leading the Reconstruction, fighting Jim Crow, leading the anti-Vietnam War movement, and creating the conditions for the election of the first black president in the history of the United States, has been stolen from them in a wave of mass imprisonment and aggressive revisionist history. And I say, when I first saw the film, I suspended disbelief and I enjoyed it a lot. But a few minutes after leaving the theater, I realized that once again Hollywood had deceived me, and the person I was most angry at was myself. 
because you enjoyed it. Right? Yeah, I was angry at myself that I enjoyed it, and I just sort of suspended disbelief and stuff that I should have known. Absolutely. And these people are good at it. Well, they're experts at it. You know, Malcolm said used to say that, uh, speaking of white supremacy, you know, they've been doing it for almost 500 years. They're experts at it. <laughs> right. You know? And the truth can be, I mean, the same, actually, can be said about Hollywood. Because, you know, Hollywood is the major fabricator of dreams, not just for the United States, for, for the whole world. And in the context in which you critique Lincoln, a film I have not seen, I must admit, uh, I actually was thinking about, believe it or not, the millions of white kids who were also betrayed because uh, they're able to now uh, continue their dream by something manufactured by Dreamland of a kind of uh, liberal and soft white supremacy. This uh, call is from the State Correctional Institution at Mahanoy and is subject to monitoring and recording. Those of us who study history know that, you know, to quote uh, Lerone Bennett, he was forced into glory. That's the title of Lerone Bennett's book about Lincoln, how, you know, in his private time, I doubt the movie shows this, but in his private time, among his cabinet and other uh, pale friends, uh, he made nigger jokes. I mean, he was famous in that circle of people who knew him for his nigger jokes. Uh, he loved uh, minstrels. And we don't see that Frederick Douglass, among others, but primarily Frederick Douglass, uh, gave him hell, uh, critiqued him mercilessly in his newspaper and in speeches uh, and in letters. He was a public thorn in the ass of Abraham Lincoln. Well, let me uh, respond to that for a minute, because sure. in, in that the two of us are seem to be on the same acid trip or something. Uh, I talk about, uh, in, back into the review, uh, the movie did not explain this critical role that Frederick Douglass and the runaway slaves played in this story, none of right. which was reflected on Lincoln. Douglass, as Doris Kearns Goodman explains, recruited black soldiers, including two of his sons, for the Union Army, and had a contentious, complex, and influential relationship with Lincoln. Imagine a scene in which a towering Douglass demands of a vacillating Lincoln that unless he retaliates against the Confederacy ideologically and militarily for their murdering of captured black Union soldiers, Douglas would stop or recruiting and distance himself from the Union cause. Douglas thunders in terms few would have dared. What is Mr. Lincoln to say about this slavery and murder? What has he said? Not at one word. Until he shall interpose his power to prevent these atrocious assassinations of Negro soldiers, the civilized world will hold them equally with Jefferson Davis responsible for them. There you go. Right. That's, I mean, think of that powerful oratory uh, that could have uh, given a real historical temperature to the film instead of this, you know, uh, Spielbergian uh, illusion, you know, uh, sweetened, enlightened, whitened, we should say, that history did never truly see. Um, Douglas gave him hell. And think about the present, because history informs our present. Who was a major critique of the Obama administration? Uh, the black 
freedom movement has been virtually uh, silenced because he's a black man and you don't want to hurt a brother. And, you know, the conditions of black America today are more hellish than they were before his election. Um, so, you know, it's not like we're just talking about Lincoln. We're talking about today's news, today's reality. And uh, once again, you know, Hollywood has sold us all a dream. And it can be a beautiful dream, but it is just a dream. It is not, uh, you know, even a fair historical portrayal of what happened. Uh, I mean, there are a hundred black actors who could have played Frederick Douglass. I saw the young man who played him on the PBS special, The Abolitionists. And he, I actually saw something, you know, I read a lot of history, but I saw an, an entry that I had never seen before. It showed Douglass uh, telling his daughter, we have to leave this country, you know. Uh, he was so disappointed in Lincoln. He uh, prepared his passport and got his papers together, him and his daughter, to leave this country. He did not want to live in the United States anymore. Um, so, I mean, obviously we don't see anything like that. And, and we need to dare to tell children how America came to be, you know, warts and all. Because that's the only way they can stop dreaming this kind of Santa Claus fantasy about freedom and justice for all. It was the exact reverse of that. Well, let me ask you this, Mumia. In the in the present context, you have uh, um, Michelle Obama on giving out the Academy Awards. You have uh, how does one develop a critique now of a black president? How Obviously, you're doing a lot of thinking about this, and if you're speaking to a, as you said, not just a new generation of black revolutionaries, but of white anti-racist kids who need more leadership, what are some of the things you want to tell them? I think that the key to really kind of waking up young kids who are part of the revolutionary and radical movements, and uh, whether they're white, black, Hispanic, Asian, whatever, is to really talk about empire, because I think when we talk about empire, um, we pierce a lot of veils. We pull down a lot of curtains. Uh, I think I told you uh, that before uh, the president was elected, I was speaking with some British comrades who were socialists, and, you know, deeply involved in the movement, and they were like all a thrill about the election. They were like, well, this is like what the black movement wanted, right? And I said, well, what it means to me is the pretty brown face of empire, that the empire will not change, but the mask behind which the empire thrives and does its global terrorism, that will change. And they looked at me as if I had sprouted horns and I was speaking in Martian. They could not get it. Their, their, their mouths dropped. But time has told the truth of that tale. And, uh, I mean... Imagine George Bush, let's say he had a third term, or even in his second term, bombing several African countries. What would the reaction be in black America? You know, what That's would the reaction right. be? People would be over the moon in anger and outrage. Instead, there's a deadly silence, you know, with some exceptions, to be sure. But for the most part, there isn't even criticism. And, uh, you know, right-wing conservatives can you know, claim that Obama's a socialist and he was born in Kenya and, uh, you know, 
all that nonsense, and where's his birth certificate? But in truth, if you talk to military people or people from the uh, national security state and the so-called quote-unquote intelligence agencies, they'll tell you, quite frankly, that uh, Obama is far more martial than Bush was. I mean, he's using smart bombs and drones and other techniques. But think of the number of countries that have been attacked. It's really quite stunning. In, in terms of the development of your own consciousness, yeah. could you ever imagine the concept of drones? And, and what are you thinking about that? Because I totally agree, but this seems to be... ...correctional institution at Mahanoy and is subject to monitoring and recording. You know, Eric, it's almost like um, a sci-fi movie come to life. I could not have imagined it, you know, uh, in 50 years. I mean, it just... You know, we live in a technological... Think about this. You know, I'm a, I'm a sci-fi nerd, so I've probably <laughs> seen every major movie and some minor ones. If you look at all those movies, none of them saw the power of the Internet or the computer. None of them predicted that, even though they did a pretty good job of predicting what the future would look like. Right. None of them saw this complete saturation of society. My wife tells me that our grandchildren, when they go to school, have cell phones and... You can, like, do anything with it. Um, I'm trying to imagine that. It's a whole new world that a lot of us never saw. And, of course, the computers, uh, what are the soldiers doing who are operating the games? Uh, uh, well, war games. They're really playing a computer game. You know. Well, you know, it's... The movie it's war games? Yes. Well, yeah. you know, we have about three minutes. One of the things I want to you, you comment on is sort of the national security state... You know, we've reached the point where, do you know that your kids' cell phones have a GPS in them and that the system is tracking every single person who has a cell phone? GPS total. Yeah. It's, it's, it, too, is mind-boggling because people now buy the tracking services so people can track you literally walking down the street. And they can monitor your communications. There are cases here in Pennsylvania where let us say, alleged uh, mafia men, had conversations with their pals. And they might have turned off their phones. And the government remotely turned it back on and listened to the <laughs> word. And then, wow. you know, busted them and said, do you want the transcript or do you want the tape? <laughs> <laughs> wow. Well, and and they, it's real. It's happening right now. In your last two minutes, any films, any books, your last thoughts that, that, that's right at the front of your mind. Well, I'm reading uh, right you before this. Seconds remaining. I was reading the collected writings of W.B. Du Bois. I mean, you can't go wrong reading Du Bois. He was the greatest of us. When you read him, you see the America that was hidden from you and me. And uh, he's well worth reading and rereading and learning from, brother. Let me give you my last, since the two of us must have some brain connection. I think Black Reconstruction America is the most important book written in U.S. history. It provides the most historical analysis of the formation of the black nation and black liberation. I would uh, dissent from that view because my favorite of Du Bois is something, a little-known book called Dark Water. Stunning piece. It's an angry Du Bois that you don't see in his earlier works. It is, but we'll both agree on Du Bois. But listen, this is great because you got the last word, so we have to have the debate next week. Let us do it. Okay, my brother. Pleasure. It's a pleasure for me, too, and I'll be in touch with you very soon. Okay, Eric. Take good care, Mumia.
from political marches to new administrations to devastating disasters to cultural change. KPFK is here to bring you the news and stories that matter. When the world changes dramatically, you rely even more on KPFK to fearlessly deliver the facts, context, and a progressive perspective that's essential to our understanding of events in hard and difficult times. And as a member of this community, it's important to support this service that makes such a difference in your time. Think about all you've heard on KPFK just in the past few months. That's what your investment supports. High quality news, in-depth reporting and connections to your neighbors and the world. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth, encouraging you to call now and donate $25, $50, $100 or more. And the next time you listen to KPFK and you hear something you really like, you'll know that you made it possible. Make your generous contribution now. Support Fearless Radio. Give now at kpfk.org or call 818-985-5735. That's 818-985-5735. Thank you. Hello, everybody. This is Eric Mann. You're listening to Voices from the Frontlines on KPFK 90.7 FM, 98.7 FM in Santa Barbara. We're really honored to have this interview with Mumia Abu-Jamao. I don't think we need much of an introduction, but a true modern-day hero. And Mumia, it's really nice to have you on the show. Hey, what's going on? Well, we have 15 minutes, I was told. So let's start with philosophy. I saw your terrific interview on Russian television, or heard it. You were mentioning Gramsci and the ideas about hegemony. Do you read Du Bois? Who else do you read? Who are the main philosophical writers that you think have influenced you the most? Well, I read widely, as widely as I can. That is, the books they allow in here. I tend to study, think about, Du Bois is certainly a part of it, because, you know, who can study black history without studying W.B. Du Bois? The Souls of Black Folk is a poetic, lyrical, beautiful, wonderful piece of history, but also a wonderful piece of culture. And I think the this only... call is from the State Correctional Institution at Mahanoy and is subject to monitoring and recording. The only work of Du Bois that really hits me harder and deeper is actually his lesser-known work known as Dark Water, because it's the mature Du Bois. I mean, The Souls of Black Folk was his kind of coming-out party, you know. And mm. when you read Dark Water, you see that he's writing about really the pogroms and the racial violence waged against black people all throughout the country during the 19-teens. And it's another Du Bois. I mean, he's darker, he's bolder, he's angrier, he's grittier. And it's just a remarkable public intellectual and radical and eventually revolutionary, giving his thoughts on what's happening in the world of that time. You know, to read the intellectual biographies and to see a 90-plus year life and to see the constant evolution of his thinking to actually die on the day of the March on Washington and to advocate communism. I read a quote by King who said, let's get right to the point that because Du Bois was a communist, you're trying to wipe him out of the historical record. Right. Well, in many ways he has been. I mean, if you think about many of his contemporaries of that time, 
for example, Paul Robeson. I mean, who knows who Paul Robeson is? If you're an African-American historian or you study African-American studies and history, you may be familiar with him. But, you know, there was a time that he was literally the most famous man, if not the most famous black man in the world. There were streets and universities and mountains named after him throughout much of the third world. He was treated like a prince when he went to the Soviet Union. But, of course, his passport, like Du Bois, his passport was seized by the U.S. government. And for years, he couldn't travel. But that's lost history in many ways. And today, millions of black people who he fought for and working people who he worked with and fought for don't even remember his name. So, you know, the Disappearance Act is very powerful in the United States of America. Well, you know, I know a lot about Du Bois and Ropes, and I've read all the biographies. I mean, Robeson was, of course, almost superhuman in terms of all-American football player, Phi Beta Kappa, spoke 40, 50 languages, the greatest singer. I think one of the things that's really important... And lawyer, don't forget. That's right, and lawyer, and right. and playwright, and actor. Right. But one of the things I think is really missing today that scares me, I mean, I come out of the 60s, I'm a product of black liberation culture and intellectual thought, that I think to see young people today, that is really being lost, including even the history of the 60s and the black liberation movement, let alone Du Bois and Robeson's We Cry Genocide. What do you think, what can we do? Well, this is um, what a famous black psychologist called menticide, that is the situation of the mind. A few weeks ago, I saw, ironically, a well-known, very erudite black historian and scholar, Mel Irvin Painter, say on C-SPAN 2 that studies have shown excuse me, studies have shown Hey, these people are kind of rude, don't you think? Quite rude. No kidding. We're having an interview here. I mean, they have no respect. None whatsoever. (laughs) Go ahead. Dr. Painter said when she's speaking to an audience in Harlem at the Harlem Book Fair, the more children, black children specifically, and Latino children, but the more black children watch popular culture, the more damage it does. That is to say, it creates a kind of menocide. It destroys their consciousness. It does damage to their self-esteem and how they look at themselves and how they see themselves in the world. Now, I happen to think that's the intention of popular culture, you know, this mercantilist, you know, shop every day emptiness that we see on reality TV every day. I think it's true as well. But one of the worst things they've done is they've obliterated African-American culture in the minds of African-American children so that they do not know their history or from whence they come. That's a kind of historical genocide, if you will. We at the Strategy Center are trying in our very small way to rebuild black political thought as a frame for not just African-American people, but it's been, in fact, the best frame that was created for understanding this country, for understanding imperialism. If you look at the 60s, every single person, Latino, Asian, indigenous people, were whites, were totally shaped by black political thought. That's a fact. That is an absolute fact. And I mean, not kind of a a theoretical construct. I say that because 
being part of the black liberation movement and other similar type movements over an extended period of time. When I meet someone who is a white anti-imperialist activist and resistor, I invariably ask them about what turned them on, or what event or book or person or personality or voice moved them to the movement. Among people of my age and slightly older, Dr. Alan Berkman, his wife, David Gilbert, a lot of people of the, say, SDS and Weatherman generation, they always say that they were living in New York and they heard Malcolm speak and the world was different. You know, the day they heard him speak, like David Gilbert went to Columbia and he gave a speech and a week later Malcolm was gone. But it stuck with him his entire life. It transformed his consciousness. It opened up doors of perception that he didn't know existed. It told him the truth about American history and, through extension, African-American history, the great stories that have been submerged in the mud, in the blood of the American imperial story. And it transformed him. The thing about Malcolm is I think he's really raised the level of verbal oratory to a whole new art form that is the most advanced. I mean, reading his speeches and, of course, hearing his speeches, it's, as you said, I mean, it's almost in another stratosphere. And to talk about popular culture and Malcolm for a moment, we're both of the same generation, I take it. Yes. And I remember growing up and literally on the black radio stations and the college stations in my town of Philadelphia would play the whole side or both sides <laughs> of Malcolm X speaking like Dallas the Bullets and many of his great speeches. You could hear that on the radio. Imagine what that did to kids. You know, I was 15 or 14 or something. And, you know, it was like cracking my mind like a walnut and just pouring this energy into it. Imagine what kids are listening to today and how remote it is from their daily existence. I mean, I understand. I don't want to sound like a shall we say, an old geezer complaining about, you know, back in the good old days. Yep. But imagine what kids are hearing on hip-hop radio every day. And by that, I don't mean the beats, because the beats are pretty tasty and really pretty exciting. I'm talking about what are they rapping about. And if you hear most of these cats, they're talking about how many cars they got. You'll excuse my French when I say how many bitches they got, how many gold chains they have around their neck. It's about stuff. It's about material. It's about wealth. It's about fame. It ain't about ideas. It ain't even about what's in their heart. It ain't even what's in their minds. It's a kind of cultural pose that's as empty as popcorn. You dig? Yes, I did. And to imagine the generation... This call is from the State Correctional Institution at Mahanoy and is subject to monitoring and recording. And she's <laughs> yeah. I just want to end because I'm worried it will get cut off. Go ahead. Um, I see you, of course, in that we've talked about Du Bois, we've talked about Robeson, but, of course, you are the present embodiment of that philosophy and that lineage. Do you consciously see yourself playing that role? Because you are. Well, I don't, only in this sense. They are as much a part of me as my mother, my father, my family, because even though I never had the pleasure of meeting Malcolm, you know. I remember being invited when he came to Philadelphia when I was a kid, and I kind of sneered at the idea at it, you know. And even though I lived in Philadelphia during the last years of Robeson, 
wow. I read his book, Here I Stand, and it gave me chills. And this is the book about him testifying before Congress and giving hell to uh, segregationist, racist congressmen. It never dawned on me until it was too late that he lived in West Philadelphia. I could have got on a bus and walked up to his door and knocked on it and begged my way in just to say, thank you, man, and say, you know, I just read your book. I love you. You're one of the greatest. You're, you're my hero. But they became part of me. And, of course, to be part of a movement and to be a part of a movement that was headed by Dr. Huey P. Newton and had Eldridge and all those good brothers and sisters of the Black Panther Party, they're a part of me. So they've enriched my life, expanded my consciousness, opened up my perception of what the world could be and should be if people work together and do what you call transformative organizing. You have 60 seconds remaining. It would be a better and a richer and a sweeter world. Boy, that was very nice to say that. So you did get the book, huh? <laughs> I did indeed. Okay. I read the intro, but I'm working on my own book, so I'm a little... Uh... Well, that's more of a priority. That's more of a priority. I just want to say that one of the goals, I think, for the movement should be to just get you on the radio more and more and more. And we'd love to have you, you know, you have a lot of other obligations, but... 30 seconds remaining. Well, Eric, let's do this again. That would be great. We really like it a lot. And uh, thanks so much for all you're doing for everybody. Thank you. On the move, long live John Africa, long live the people's movement for freedom, justice, and equality. Well, I'm almost speechless. You know, Mark Maxwell said he's one of the freest people I've ever met. And just listening to him, you know, we did the interview two weeks ago, so I never heard it before, and I was busy being in it. But just the, obviously you don't need an interpretation, but the precision of his thinking, the, the centeredness of where his mind is going, the role of a black public intellectual is so critical, and the rebuilding of black revolutionary thought. So he's such an original thinker. One of the things that uh, Jeff Ramsey Ray, the producer, and I are trying to figure out is how to get him on the show pretty often. He also does these two-minute commentaries that we would like to get more often on the show. He does news analysis and stuff. So let's try to make that happen. I want you to know that there are people still trying to figure out how to get him out of prison. That is to say, I think you know that, thank goodness, they've dropped the death penalty. His present sentence, though, is life in prison without, quote, possibility of parole. He's in the general population, which is terrific. He has human contact. But the free Mumia movement is not over, and in future shows, I, I don't know enough about the specific legal grounds and human rights grounds they're bringing it, but there will be, I just want to be clear, uh, a continued effort to free uh, Mumia Abu-Jamal. So I'm sort of sitting here genuinely speechless and just listening to his voice. As always, I want to thank you for listening to Voices from the Front Lines. This has been your host, Eric Mann. <music> Donations help keep KPFK alive. Your tax-deductible donation helps fund new equipment, repairs, shows, community events, and station operations. Our programming is free of influence from big oil, pharmaceutical companies, banks, and the military-industrial complex. We don't take money from them. We support you. Help keep KPFK and progressive, independent media alive, especially during times like these. Go to kpfk.org, click Make a Pledge, and make your contribution today. Thank you so much for your much-needed support. 
So hey everybody, this is Eric Mann. You're on Voices from the Frontlines, your national movement building show. It's hard to do a national movement building show still in a stay in place order. Uh, I'm in one house uh, recording with my friend and co-worker Channing Martinez, the uh, producer of the show. We are certainly producing the show. We're working also with Kiana Williams, who's helping us produce the show. Then we send it as a file to KPFK. And then every Tuesday at three, if you're a loyal listener, which we appreciate, we play voices from the front lines. Also, we really want you to get your friends or yourselves to go on our site, go on our site, voicesfromthefrontlines.com, usually a day after the show. You can download the show if you missed it. You can download last week's show. You can download other shows. So today's subject is the absolute horror of how people are treated in the L.A. County jail system and the work of the Youth Justice Coalition, along with 25 other groups, including our organization, the Labor Community Strategy Center. And we're going to get a firsthand report from Channing Martinez, who was on a two-hour call today, and he's going to start reading the main demands. Channing, introduce yourself and say hi, read the demands, and then I'll talk to folks about supporting the station. Hey, everyone. Channing Martinez, producer of Voices from the Frontlines. As Eric said, I went to this great meeting. So here are the top eight demands that they have. Immediate release of all misdemeanors, low-level felonies, technical probation violations from jails, juvenile halls, and camps. No new detention on these charges. The court must review all other cases for release. No transfers from juvenile halls to jails. Stop assessment and collection of all system fees and fines. Access to quality education for youth in custody. Online learning support for IEPs. Um, and English language learners and college courses for high school grads, free uh, phone calls and stamps, masks, gloves, disinfectants for all. Um, and then the final one is no ice transfers. Yeah, it's really tragic. Somehow in the middle of everything, when they say free phone calls and stamps, masks, gloves, and disinfectants, that means that they're charging for phone calls and stamps it's a minor thing in the middle of all this chaos, but it just shows you how terrible things are in, in the jails. So before we get to the serious, uh, and the word is plight of the prisoners during COVID-19, we have to talk to you a little bit about trying to help contribute to KPFK. We're not in a so-called fund drive right now, which is good. The station is doing everything it can to put on the fullest program during the COVID-19 pandemic. But the station lives, it is called listener-sponsored radio. You know the number, 818-985-5735. Think about making a contribution now. Station is going through some difficult times, as always, and it's going to be even more difficult, as even a lot of our members and listeners are not the highest income people. But for those of you who have any disposable income and will love the station, please call 818-985-5735 right now and make a contribution. You know what to do. You can also go on kpfk.org 
and there are online way to make the contribution. All right, I want to move on to the conversation with Channing. So Channing, start from the beginning. You walk into the meeting. You're you're on an online meeting. On on a uh, what was it like? What was the conversation about? Obviously, their goals is trying to get the county of Los Angeles to carry out these eight demands. Tell us about the meeting, and you have some really great quotes here from some of the prisoners. Sure. Well, the highlights of the meeting were the quotes from the the actual inmates, and you know, hearing a lot of other quotes. Um, but the purpose of this meeting, and this is the meeting number four. Apparently, they've had three meetings before that. But the purpose of this meeting is to have, as they say, system officials do a community forum where they report back on any progress that they're making for transitions during the COVID-19 quarantine for those that are locked up in both county jail um, and in, uh, in probation. And even in the next meeting that they'll be having in late May, they'll be talking about the federal prison system. Um, so it, it, it's a new, it was a new format for me. Um, there are a lot of people from, how should I say it? Like there's, there's representatives from a lot of elected office, offices actually in the meeting. Um, and many of them were really just there to listen to what people were saying, listen to what the community was saying and listen to what inmates were saying. Um, and so that was a very different experience everything that every inmate inmate said was just heartbreaking. Um, and whatever you're hearing on TV or on any media of what any of these systems are promising, they're not doing any of it. And it is, you know, from what they describe, it is basically genocide going on. I mean, and I mean that we always talk about genocide in the strategy center um, as the five definitions. Um, but, you know, this, and this is all of those definitions to just be clear. <laughs> um, right. But this is the most for uh, most frontally, this is the definition of genocide that even if you don't know the United Nations definition, this is the genocide that everyone knows about. So everything that you've thought about in history that you've seen you know, on TV of people being killed, this is literally people being killed. And they're speaking on the phone, you know, about themselves being killed at a very slow rate, a pace. There was an article on, uh, I believe it's my friend Sam Anderson puts out a terrific daily email that you should go online and find. Uh, one is called the reparations list that I'm on. The other is called black ED news that you can use education news. He doesn't make, I don't know, it's a, It's like a, his own national listserv, but one, somebody went into Rikers Island in New York, which is just all black and Puerto Rican and Dominican. And the headline was, it was like a slave ship. You know, that's how badly people were packed in. So Channing, why don't we maybe, we'll take turns reading the testimony of the prisoners. Yeah, so what these are quotes some of them are things that I tried to write down. And then in the meeting, in the chat, someone was actually writing down word from word the quotes. And so I, I just wrote down as much as I can and I copied as well. <laughs> so Good. it might be repetitive, but that's all right. Um, so the first one, um, 
you know, they haven't had any yard. And what they mean by that is they haven't been able to really leave their cells and go out into the yard. Um, no yard except for yesterday, except yesterday in peak of day because someone had scabies. One inmate asked for water and they ignored him. They came in very slow response with guns telling inmates to get against the wall and not look. Someone had a strike and they responded with rubber bullets and tasers. Court dates keep getting pushed back to this. is a, uh, I'm sorry. Court dates keep getting pushed back. This is a modern day Guantanamo Bay. I've requested to get let go. Here on the second, the third layer hearsay was pulled here from Hawaii. Is a death sentence pre-diabetic will eventually get the virus. So now there's another person speaking from North, Pitches North facility. We put in mask request forms for masks. A gentleman had a stroke after being left in the hot sun. The response was with tasers and force. It doesn't make sense to wait for people to get sick and fall over. They should just do widespread testing for everybody. They're just trying to push things under the rug. It's almost impossible for social distancing because our bunks and showers are close together. Many of us lost our sense of smell and taste. Some of the deputies weren't wearing masks. To keep us safe, they gotta do more. We haven't had yard in quite a while. They put us in the hot sun for four hours. One man had a seizure on the yard and they came in with guns. This is the kind of treatment we've had. Put in the hot sun, not getting water. This feels like Guantanamo Bay. We're guilty until proven innocent. There's a basic death sentence here for us. I was pre-diabetic before I came here. If we get sick or die, who can tell my wife? Who can my wife hold accountable? Who can my wife cry to? There's many others who are stuck in the system. They can do more on letting a lot of us go so we can be with our family. People here are getting real sick. Fever, can't taste, can't smell. Someone tested positive and they're not helping us with any testing. My main concern is our health and safety. People waking up with cold sweats, the conditions are real bad. We don't know what's gonna happen with our court cases. We need testing. First of all, we need to know if we got it. It's real scary not knowing if you got COVID that sent to the, until they do something about it. And all they do is take them to the Twin Towers. We feel hopeless in here. A couple of sheriffs come in here with no masks on. We can't say anything to them. We have no mask. It's just a rag that we put over our mouths. I feel like there's nothing being done for us. They keep pushing my court date back. There's no way I can get out of this. Body aches, back pains, chills, coughing. The whole dorm is going through this. I was supposed to go to court on June 18th, but it got pushed back. I should have been home with family for time served, but they keep pushing my court date back. We put in mass complaints and requests, and there's no response to it. All they do is temperature checks. They're waiting for someone to get really sick before they do anything about it. Yeah, I mean, this is really terrifying because, you know, uh, I was in prison from January 1970 to July of 1971 for demonstrations against the war in Vietnam. I was, yes, very fortunate because at that time in history, in Massachusetts, there was actually a very liberal prison policy. 
if you can imagine it, uh, they didn't stop people from going to prison, but there was actually a moment of trying to teach people decently. We had our own cells. I mean, that's not a lot. A lot of these guys don't have a cell. They had two in a cell, three in a cell. Sometimes they're in a, a dorm. They, they, they talk about, we don't have enough beds. You're not talking about enough rooms, let alone, you know. So you can't do social distancing with two people in a cell. The cell is not more than six feet wide, uh, six feet long, and maybe two or three feet deep. So all this stuff is terrible. I, Eric Mann, have been sick a couple of times during the COVID period. I've had exhaustion, had a sore throat. None of these, fortunately, are COVID-19 symptoms, but I was scared. And I'm in a completely privileged situation. You get scared, but you don't know what, and you can't even imagine what it's like to get scared in prison. First of all, these are the toughest young women and men. You, I mean, you get you have to be tough to be in prison. Whether you are when you came in, you will be when you get out. So these are some of the most amazing people. And for them to say they're depressed, despondent, the, the, the system, which Channing was saying, part of uh, the definition of genocide is inflicting physical harm or death on a people or some of a people based on their racial category. And these are all black and Latino prisoners. So they're being told uh, you'll either get COVID-19 and die or you won't, but we have no intention of helping you. So it's a really urgent situation. What's scary about it is the strategy centers have been talking about free the U.S. 2.5 million, now maybe 2.2 or 2.3, but we rounded off. Free all black people, free all Latinos. Now, just to clarify, we really mean free 90% of the prisoners. There's some people that need to be in some way restrained from society, but they don't have to be tortured. They don't have to be humiliated. They can be treated humanely uh, and should be there. They still have certain inalienable rights, even as prisoners. So we now have this mass incarceration and mass warehousing of black and Latino prisoners and low-income prisoners. And that's what this is about. Even in the middle of a COVID-19, where they supposedly we're all in this together, the prisoners are never in this society about how they're treated. So, Channing, why don't you go back again to the demands, and let's talk about how our listeners can do something to help these sisters and brothers in prison. All right. So, again, the demands are immediate release of all misdemeanors, low-level felonies, technical probation violations from jails, juvenile halls, and camps. No new detention on these charges. The court must review all other cases for release. No transfers from juvenile halls to jails. Stop assessment and collection of all system fees and fines. Access to quality education for youth in custody, online learning, support for IEPs, English language learners and college courses for high school grads, free phone calls, stamps, masks, gloves, disinfectant for all, no ice transfers. I think it's really depressing that people have to ask for this. I mean, they're not asking for socialism. They're not asking for a guaranteed job. They're not, you know, they're just asking, can I please get out of here? Uh, 
One of the things, I want to look at the petition here. It says the following county officials, probation chief Ray Leva, probation deputy chief Reverend Bingham, district attorney Jackie Lacey, city council Mike Fuhrer, the Honorable Kevin Brazier, presiding judge in the LA Superior Court, the Honorable Sam Alta, supervisory judge of Superior Court Criminal Division. Um, uh, why don't you read some of the tweets? They're really good right below that. And the names that you just read are the names of all the officials that can mostly do things that have That's not right. responded at all. That's right. Um, so here are some of the tweets. Um, it says, where are you at at LAC, LAD, LADA office, city attorney of LA, superior court, LA judge, Brazil, urgent uh, action is needed, immediate release of youth in, uh, adult and adults in custody, protect people's health and education and sanitary access now. Hashtag detentions is deadly. Missing an action. LAD office, all those people. You're missing an action. Friday, May 8th, is the fourth emergency meeting with officials and your offices are missing. Detention is deadly during COVID-19. Stop the case-by-case -case slow work. Everyone has the right to survive the pandemic. So parenthesis, what that means is they're going, well, yeah, but I got to look at each person's case. Come on, you got thousands of people in there. Let them all out. If they're not in for the most violent crimes, if they're in for all this petty stuff that you put them in in the first place, just let them out. That's what they're saying. Absolutely right. All right. So they're all the same similar things. But so here's the thing, voices, listeners, people are dying in jail. And we we are hoping that this show would get every show 15 to 20 people. So here's the thing. If you send an email to Eric at VoicesFromTheFrontLines.com, Eric at VoicesFromTheFrontLines.com. In reality, that goes to me and Channing to start. Every email we get, we respond to. I'm starting to do that much better. But certainly the emails we want is, hey, I want to get involved. So I went online. This is your email or, you, you know, saying I reached out to Youth Justice Coalition. that's doing a terrific job, YJC. Uh, what's their email? What's the website, Janning? Their website is youthjusticela.org. Youthjusticela.org. I mean, they do some amazing work. And th this is such hard work to work with all these prisoners. So we are totally at the Strategy Center. You know, we're focusing on free transportation. We're focusing on trying to deal with police brutality on the trains and buses, et cetera, et cetera. But there's other people doing great work that we support their work, right? So Youth Justice Coalition is just doing some terrific work with prisoners, and we need you to support their work. So if you call them up, if you reach out to them, and then if you say, Eric at Voices from the Frontlines, I want you to know that I reached out to them, or I don't know what to do, could you put me in touch with somebody? Then Channing and I, who read every one, we know why we did the show. But I, I want to be honest with you. A lot of you... Last week, we did this amazing show, which you can see online, which is the five organizers from the Strategy Center. We got some great emails from a few friends about this being one of the best shows. We got very little support for our campaign for free transportation and other things. So the point is, is that 
if all hearts are breaking about the prisoners, even if we have a thousand or two thousand listeners per time, which isn't bad, the concept is fifty of you. I mean, it, twenty of you get in touch with us and say we're going to do something. So we need more pressure on Jackie Lacey. Mike Fuhr is a a liberal Democrat. Why he hasn't done more as city attorney, I don't know. You know, there's been a lot of criticism of Jackie Lacey being so in with the police. But right now, she is the district attorney until the next election, which is a runoff. We got to get her to do something. These judge, the reason you're writing to a judge is a judge can issue an order. Judge can walk in and say, I need a restraining order. Right now, I'm ordering these people out. So that's why they're asking you to, to write to the Kevin Brazil and Honorable Sam Ota. Okay? And then the the Children Court Judge Victor Greenberg. All that stuff is on the line. What are you going to do? This isn't entertainment radio. You know, our hearts are breaking over this. And we need your help. Channy, you get some last thoughts on what you're thinking, and then I want to ask people again to give to the station, and, and we appreciate everybody listening. You're on KPFK, listener-sponsored radio. You're on 90.7 FM in Los Angeles, 98.7 FM in Santa Barbara, streaming live on the web at kpfk.org. We also want you to go to our website, voicesfromthefrontlines.com. Send me an email and send me and Channing an email at eric at voicesfromthefrontlines.com. We urgently need to hear from you. Channing, what are your takeaways? You know, you're very, like you and I, we get involved and then we're torn up by this. Tell me some of your, as you were walking off that call, some of the things you were feeling and thinking. The most important feeling that I felt is that I'm doing a lot of work, but even though I'm doing a lot of work, there's so much more work that's happening and there's so much more genocide, to be quite frank, that's happening just under the radar that we're not, we, we're not we're aware about every day. It's not like it's happening right outside of our, you know, right in our streets. Um, there's real genocide with 2.5 million people in this country happening, and there's a pandemic. And there's some people trying to do something about it, but the vast majority of elected officials and the vast majority of people either don't know about it or they don't really care about it. So my most uh, important objective here is to get everyone that's listening to this radio show and the podcast afterwards is to take action and do something and go to their website and, you know, call the people that they're asking you to call, sign the petition, get 10 other people to sign the petition, get 10 other people to, to, to call them and put as men, much pressure on these people as possible. And whenever you hear something on KPFK that's about a movement, then you should be asking, what is the action you should be taking? How can I help? Not just, this is a very interesting conversation. That was the voice of Channing Martinez. If they want to reach you, Channing, how do they do so? They can also email Eric at voicesfromthefrontlines.com and I will definitely get it. No, how do they re- email you directly? Okay, you. Uh, Channing at the strategy center. Dot org. So C-H-A-N-N-I-N-G at thestrategycenter.org. Yeah, there's a rumor that we've become one person. It's not true. We're two, two separate people. 
And but he has an email. I have an email, but I tend to read his and he reads mine. Okay. So if you want to, I'm serious. If you'd like to directly correspond with Channing and you heard his show today, do that. Channing at the strategycenter.org, Eric at voices from the frontlines.com. Each of us will make sure we get back to you. And then I want to end again with asking your support for the station. You know, Anya Fields and Kevin Fleming are just working so, so hard to try to keep the station together under these conditions. You have no idea how important money is. I mean, it's not funny that, you know, they have these emergency loans for small businesses, but Shake Shack got $8 million because they snuck their stuff in and got it right away. Harvard University got $10 million. The LA Lakers got money, but KPFK, I hope it got some money, but seriously, it didn't get seven or $8 million. So I don't want you to be those people that say, it's not fair. Did you read about this? The answer is we have to give money to our station and do it pretty regularly. You know, when you go to church, they pass it every Sunday. They don't pass it. They don't say this is fun Sunday. They have every day is fun Sunday at church. So we don't have every day is fun to drive with KPFK, but we're lucky right now. We're not in a fun drive, but that doesn't mean the station doesn't need money. 818-985-5735. Please call the station and make a contribution. Go online at kpfk.org. They and we need your support. And then, yeah, please support the groups as well that are doing all the work to get people out of prison. I want to give my real appreciation to the Youth Justice Coalition for the excellent work they're doing. And we'll be in touch next Tuesday. You're on Voices from the Frontlines, your national movement building show. This is Eric Mann, your host. And Channing, you say goodbye to the folks too. This is Channing Martinez, producer of Voices from the Frontlines. Thank you so much, everyone. Take good care of yourselves. And every highway and more, much more than this.